Good morning, everyone. If you're new with us today, welcome. My name is David Cassidy, and I'm the senior pastor here at Spanish River Church, and it's a particular privilege and joy to welcome you and to welcome all, along with those who are joining us online. Bless you. We are with you in heart, glad that you are with us. We're going to take a brief time of prayer here this morning before we tackle the scriptures and let them tackle us. The Bible is a book you not only read, but a book that reads us, reads our heart and changes us. Just before we turn to the scriptures, we want to remember that 21 years ago today, life was changed for many, many people in this gathering space and across this country and in many ways across the world through the events that took place in New York, in Pennsylvania, and in Washington, D.C. The attacks that happened on 9-11 caused the death of many thousands of people and led to tremendous upheaval, health issues, many, many repercussions. And today, those still echo with us. And so we want to take a moment this morning to pray for all those who were impacted by the terrible events that unfolded in the morning of September 11th, 2001. Now, just before we do that, we're going to take a moment to confess our sins. We're going to admit to the Lord what we already know to be true and he knows as well and that is that just as we've sung this morning about the blood of Christ cleansing us from sin we need to confess our sins so I'll lead us in that time we'll take a minute of silence to confess privately and personally our particular sins and then we'll hear God's promise and pray together so let's take a moment to confess our sins Lord we thank you for your mercies towards us new every morning and we bless you We thank you that there is forgiveness for us in Jesus Christ, and you promised this to us in the gospel, and you have promised that if we confess our sins and don't hide them, but acknowledge them, you will cleanse us and purge us. And so, Lord, now, here in this moment, we together as your people in the quietness acknowledge our need for your mercy and grace. Would you take just a moment to acknowledge your need for God's mercy to forgive you? Lord, we thank you for your grace towards us. Forgive our sins. Forgive the sins of the preacher. They are many. And Lord, we thank you that you will be kind to us because you have sent your only son to be the savior of the world. Our world is in great pain in so many places. And now, Lord, we acknowledge that the repercussions of what took place 21 years ago still echo across time in many hearts and in many ways. And we pray for the healing and the comfort of all those who grieve still and all those who bear the burdens of that day. We thank you for the blessed memory of all those who ran into the fire, who ran towards the disaster, and in doing so showed us your love. For you are the God who did not turn your back on us in our disaster, but ran towards us to rescue us and redeem us. We pray for our local law enforcement officials, for all those who work in the fire department. We thank you for all those in our civil government. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen us and all those who serve us in so many ways, remembering those who serve in the military too. And ask, O Lord, that great works of your mercy and grace would take place in those communities too. Sustain them, O Lord, with the duty to serve 
and the wisdom to govern rightly. And now, Lord, we ask all these things as we open your word, trusting that the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words would help us to learn and to understand and to keep them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks be to God. I want to invite you this morning to turn to the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible in chapter 8. And if you're new with us today, you've come on not only a great day for holy baptism, but also as we begin a new sermon series, and it's on the subject of worship. We're going to spend several Sundays together on the subject of gathering together to worship. It's something that Christians do um, on a regular basis, not only personally, but with our families. There's family worship as well as personal worship and personal devotion. But our primary emphasis during this series is going to be on gathered worship, on congregational worship, and why God gives us this as a gift that he calls us into communion with him. Now, I'm going to be reading today from the NIV. Often we read from the ESV version of the, of the Bible. Sometimes people ask me which version is the best, and I always tell them all of them. Um, it's, it's good to read the Bible from several, several different uh, English translations. You sometimes pick things up that you might have missed other ways. But in the NIV, I want us to read a few texts together. And normally, we might take a large section of Scripture and work our way through it. But today, we're going to read some scattered verses from chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. And I, the reason I want to do it is because I want to fill out something that we may, may have missed. You see, if you watched the old Cecil B. DeMille movie, The Ten Commandments, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because that will age you, um, you will have heard Charlton Heston come up to Ewell Brenner and say, let my people go. But there was a whole lot more to what Moses actually said to Pharaoh. So let's look at it. Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. Then to go up to Pharaoh, the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Why did God want to liberate his people? Why does God come to save his people? So that the end of that is that we may worship the Lord. Then verse 20, same chapter, chapter 8, verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. And then verse 13 of the same chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, why don't we all say it together this time, let my people go so that they may worship me. And then chapter 10, verse 3, and you know what's coming. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, how long are you going to refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may worship me. Why does God set his people free? Why does God deliver them from slavery? It is to bring them into his presence. And you go, well, this is odd. God says, I want you to come out that you may worship me. Is God insecure? 
Is he in need of praise and worship? Well, no, God is almighty. He needs nothing. There is nothing that in our offering to God we add to him. No, worship, communion with God, was the outcome of a people being freed from this yoke of slavery that they'd endured generation after generation. Their children were literally being put to death. They themselves had no rest. You know, slaves get no day off. So imagine that you're part of the people of Israel, and finally on that great day of Exodus, you take all your belongings, all your family, and you leave. And you are leaving because you are going to enjoy something you haven't enjoyed in so long, a gift called Sabbath. Rest, peace will be with it, the shalom of God. You will have Sabbath and you will have communion with God altogether, free from the oppression and the poverty and the lack of everything that slavery meant. And yet many people don't understand that that gift from God, that you may be with me, that you may dwell with me, is something of beauty and grace. It's as if you stood at the base of the steps in your house and your children were up there cleaning their rooms and you said, children, come to the steps and they all stood there. And then you looked at them and you said, now hear this, you must all stop cleaning your rooms. You must all cease from all labors, and we are going to have a feast today. We're going to celebrate today. We're going to rejoice today. And your children looked down at you and hissed, legalist, who are you to impose these terrible restrictions on me? That's so often how people treat the gift that God gives us as his liberated people to come into his presence. And yet, when we understand that God frees us to enter his presence, we will begin to celebrate and enjoy him, and that will bear witness to the world. In 900 AD, a prince in Kiev named Vlad, a pagan man, knew that all of the pagan gods his people had worshipped for so long were no gods at all. He knew there must be one true creator God, but he wasn't sure how to approach him, what worship would be right, how do I know what's true? And so he chose emissaries and he sent them to Mecca and he sent them to Rome and he sent them to Constantinople to tour the world faiths and then to come back the monotheistic faiths, and come back and tell me what you discovered. And so they went, and then they came back to him, and they talked to him about their experience in the Church of Holy Wisdom, which was in Constantinople. It's modern-day Istanbul, and maybe you've been there. I've I've been there, and, and, and there's a great dome of the Church of Holy Wisdom, Hagia Sophia. It's so high, and this church was constructed in 587. That's, that's how old that building is. That dome is so high, you can fit the Statue of Liberty inside it. And they came into a worship service. And the presence of God in that assembly was so powerful, it changed the world. They came back and they told Prince Vlad... We knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth. 
On earth, there is no such splendor or such beauty, and we are at a loss as to how to describe it. We know only that God dwells there with his people, and we cannot forget that beauty. Imagine people reporting about the gathered worship of God's people and saying it like this. We, we were overwhelmed by a sense of God being among his people and it was beautiful beyond description. It wasn't the three points of the message, important as they may be and they are. And it wasn't necessarily the song that was sung, it was the awareness of the presence of God. You see, Jesus said, where two or three of you will gather together in my name, what? There I am. It doesn't have to be big, it could be small. But when God's people gather, the presence of God is with them. That's why we're gonna talk about the unique characteristic of gathered worship of congregational worship when God gathers us together. And we're gonna look at this in terms of the distortion of worship, the restoration of worship, and the gift of worship. You see, friends, we were created to be in communion with God. We long for it. And we long for that beauty that those emissaries experienced. Our hearts were made for it. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has placed eternity in the heart of humankind. He's put eternity in us, so there's a longing inside of us to connect with the eternal. We wanna meet God. We hope to see who he is. We wanna know that he is with us. He reveals himself to us as his people in unique ways when he gathers us together. A little boy was asked to describe his first trip in an elevator, and he said, I got in this little room and the upstairs came down. In a certain way, that's what happens in worship. We gather together, we come into a place, and suddenly God is among us, and we hear his voice, and we know him. You see, the human heart keeps looking for its home, and it thinks that there are things in this world that can make of us whole people, when in fact, all they do is end up destroying us. This is why not only is the heart of redemption worship, let my people go that they may worship me, that's true because the heart of the fall of humankind is manifested in false worship. Listen to Romans chapter one, where Paul describes humanity in its lostness. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. See, the heart of the fall of mankind is to turn away from God and to try to find in the created order, not the creator, but the created order, everything we need for our hearts. David Foster Wallace, give you a lengthy quote from him, wrote, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. 
There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice is what we worship. The compelling reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel that you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly and when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you and your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about all these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful in what they want to bring us to, it's that they're unconscious, they're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day without ever being fully aware of what you're doing. The essence of idolatry of false worship is to take a good thing, like provision or beauty, and to turn it into an ultimate thing. To take success, which is a good thing, and make it the ultimate thing. The writer of Ecclesiastes, again, is very wise, and he tells us all of that is hebel, vanity, striving after wind, that our life is a breath, it's here and out. And all of the accumulation, all of it that we seek to bring into our lives, whether it's an accumulation of wealth or power or beauty or greatness in some way in the eyes of other people, will always end up doing something. It's what happened to Pharaoh. It hardened his heart. But what happens in conversion, let my people go that they may worship me, is a change of hearts takes place. God turns us from idols to serve him, to worship him. We come back into communion with him. That's what the restoration of worship is all about. You see, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator is exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. The garden of Eden, Eden was the land, the garden was a particular place in it, was a place where humankind had communion with God. And then our first parents, Adam and Eve, they broke that communion by turning away from God and listening to a lie that God was holding out on them, that something greater awaited them, that they could be their own God, that they could make their own rules, that they could establish their own kingdom and their own preeminence, and they bought it. They ate it. And it resulted in their demolition, and the serpent vandalized their souls. And they found themselves lost and fearful, and they began to hide. And then, of course, God still comes into the sanctuary. God still wants to meet with his people. So he shows up, and he, they're not there. They're skipping church. Sorry, just, you know, okay. If the shoe fits, okay. All right, so they're hiding out. They're afraid. They don't want anything to do with God. They're hiding. Adam, God calls out, where are you? Where are you? Now, he didn't call out, where are you? Because he didn't know where he was. Adam wasn't lost like I lose my car keys. He knew right where Adam was. He needed Adam to hear him call his name. And he brought him out and he clothed him and he forgave him. But he also said, you don't have access anymore to this sanctuary. You're gonna have to go over here. 
east of Eden and Adam and Eve were banished. And to guard the way to the tree of life, two angels were stationed there. With flaming swords, they could not come back in. But God did not leave his people without the promise of renewed communion with him. And so God comes to his enslaved people in Egypt. This is, this is thousands of years later, of course. He comes to them, and he had given the promise to Abraham, 400 years from now, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to redeem my people. Let my people go that they may worship me. And worship is that communion with God. And he brings them out. He brings them out. Moses brings them out. And God says in Exodus 19, you see what I've done for you, how I've borne you on eagles' wings and I've brought you to myself. And all of Israel's rejoicing. They come to Mount Sinai. There's fire on the top. Moses goes up there. He has communion with God. And God gives him a plan for a, a kind of tent house called the tabernacle. Outside, there's, a, there's an altar in the courtyard, and it's, it's uh, where the sacrifices were made. And the blood that would forgive God's people was shed. The water in the baptism you saw today was an emblem of that blood that's shed by the Lamb of God to take away our sins. And so that blood was shed on that sacrificial altar. There was a great bowl, a laver of water that the priests would draw from to wash with. And then they would go inside. And inside there was an inner room called the holy place. And there was a a table with bread on it called the bread of the presence. There was the menorah, the great candle labra, great candlestick of Israel. And there there was the altar of incense. Morning and evening, incense was being burned. And it would go through a veil into the holy of holies, through the veil into this most inner sanctuary called the holy of holies. And in that holy of holies was a rectangular shaped box with a, a lid on it and two angels on it. And God said about that in chapter 25, there I will meet with you. Exodus 25, 22. There I will meet with you. There I will commune with you. There I will speak with you. And the priest would take blood on the great day of atonement and he would walk into the holy of holies and then he would come up to that veil. And you remember what was on the veil? Two what? Angels. And the first time Aaron walked in there with the blood from the sacrifice and he walked past the veil, past the angels, was the first time a human being had walked back into the garden. Because the Holy of Holies, if you looked at it, the way it was designed, and this is all in the parts of the Bible you you, you never read. You get to that part and you're through the Bible reading plan and you go, ah, this is all about cubits and cords and measurements and pomegranates and stuff and I I don't know, man. But let me tell you why it's all important because when you get in there, it tells you that the holy of holies all over the ceiling and the walls were palm trees. Palm trees, thank God for palm trees. I love palm trees. They're holy trees. They were in the Holy of Holies and pomegranates, all these plants and trees. In other words, the Holy of Holies was a what? It was a garden. And the first time Aaron walked in there, he walked back into the garden, past the angels that were guarding it. 
and he put blood there. But it was a blood that was to heal our hearts and point towards the blood that would renew and restore us. Because eventually, Christ, the Lamb of God, would come. And he would hang on the cross. And do you remember what happened when Jesus hung on the cross? And this is the gift of worship. This is the gift of worship. He hung on the cross and he died and he said, it is finished. And in the moment Jesus said, it is finished, in the temple, just around the corner, in the temple, there was a veil. Those angels are there. Do you remember what happened? It was torn apart. Now, do you think it was torn apart so God could get out? No, it was torn wide open so we could come in. We could enter the presence. And it wasn't just there. It was saying to us, all the barriers, all the impediments, every single one of these stages that you think you have to go through to get to God, no, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And when Jesus came and died on the cross, he opened up the way so that you and I could once again come into communion with God. He set his people free. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Worship, friends. It's not something God needs, it's something we need. We were made for communion with God. And so Christ gives it to us. And he died on that cross. And then they took his body down and they laid it in a tomb which was where? Well, wait for it, wait for it. The tomb was in a garden. Ah. And on the third day, Mary comes into the garden. And she sees the stone rolled away. And she looks in and she sees a a long rectangular section where the body used to be, where the blood had been put, because that's where his bleeding body was laid. She sees this long rectangular section and at either end are two angels. And if you have any Hebrew in you, you know that she knew what she was looking at the Holy of Holies. And the blood of the Lamb had been placed there. And she was stunned. And she walked out. And she heard someone call her name, Mary. She turned around and she thought it was, the scripture says, the gardener. She was right. And it was Jesus. And she embraced him. What do you have? A man and a woman in a garden. And that should look familiar. And what does that mean? It means the world was starting over. It means that from that moment on, if you put your faith in Christ, you become, as Paul wrote, a new creation. The new creation has begun. Heaven has come to earth. And that's why you and I have been created for communion with God. Christ died, not just so you could go to heaven at the end of your life. That's true. And what an amazing gift that is. But he has graced to you, gifted to you, access to the throne room of grace to come with all the holy angels, as the writer of Hebrews says, to come boldly into his presence to come. My friends, this gift has been offered to you. It is offered to you today to come 
through the blood of Christ. And there, God says, I will meet with you. And there, I will speak with you. My friends, there are many distortions of worship. We'll get into them. It'll be some shots across the bow. I may say some things that upset you. No, I will say some things that upset you. (laughs) But I will tell you this. We will discover, by God's mercy and grace, the gift of gathered congregational worship and enter it. And then maybe there's some people in the world who will report to some other people, we've never been in anything like it. We can't forget its beauty. There, heaven and earth have met. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would capture our hearts, that you would turn us into those people who have been liberated to come into your presence, who understand that the theology of the gospel leads to the doxology of glory and basking in your presence. And so now, Lord, we come. We enter your presence with thanksgiving. We come into your gates with praise, and we say you are great and greatly to be praised. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's all stand together, shall we, and worship the Lord. Bless the Lord. Thank you, my friends.